The gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. In this gospel lesson, John the Baptist reveals who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Uh, Back during Advent, we saw the first part of John's ministry when he prepared the way for Jesus to appear. And so he was talking about Jesus, although uh, during the Advent season, what we read about John, he didn't name Jesus by name because he was... was, uh, He was kind of concealing it a little bit until the right time to reveal it. Uh, But here in this gospel lesson is the right time for John to reveal the identity of Jesus. And so so what we see is that John points to Jesus. He reveals exactly who he is. And then from this point on, John kind of fades into the background. He decreases while Jesus increases. Please stand again as you are able for the reading of the gospel from John chapter 1, beginning at verse 29, we read in Jesus' name. The next day he, that is, John the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but... For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen... And have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. And you may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Every once in a while, there are words or phrases that are so pregnant with meaning that they speak volumes. And that's what happens with John's testimony of Jesus. In 13 words, John the Baptist teaches us what the Old Testament is about, who Jesus is, what Jesus is on earth to do, and how we are saved. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, why does John call Jesus a lamb? Why not some other kind of random animal like a duck or a rabbit or a swallow? Why a lamb? Why the Lamb of God? 
Now, some animals, they have certain symbolism. For instance, at the risk of being offensive to foxes, if you call a person a fox like Jesus did to King Herod, it indicates that the person is perhaps rather sneaky or mischievous. Or a wolf would be along those same lines, except even more malevolent and ferocious and even murderous. Other animals have other negative connotations, negative symbolism like a, a pig or a rat or a snake. And I really hope that there are no foxes, wolves, pigs, rats, or snakes listening because they might be offended and I don't want these animals or their lawyers on my bad side. Other animals have a positive symbolism. A cheetah would be a person who is really fast. Or a lion, that would indicate strength and royalty. And so it's quite glorious when Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It means that he is a conquering king. But the most common animal that Jesus is compared to is a lamb. And that's kind of weird. Most of us would take offense at being called a lamb because lambs are kind of weak. After all, they're really just sheep and just small sheep, so even weaker on the positive, I suppose that they're, they're kind of cute and maybe innocent looking, but they're completely defenseless and they're not real bright. They can't protect themselves. And most of us would be offended to be called a lamb. But John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And it's not an insult at all. It is the highest praise. And so what does this mean? These words, they summarize several Old Testament passages. Basically, everything in the Old Testament that has to do with the lamb finds its fulfillment in John's statement. All the stuff about lambs is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And so, even though we're reading from the New Testament today for our gospel lesson, uh, in order to get a, a feel for what John's talking about, we're going to spend most of our time in the Old Testament, going through a brief survey of lambs in the Old Testament. Now, there are a lot of lambs in the Old Testament, and most of them end up dying in some kind of religious ceremony. Death was the religious purpose of lambs. They got sacrificed. Over the course of the Old Testament, literally millions of lambs were sacrificed. In the period of time that we call the Old Testament, was a rather difficult time to be a lamb, especially if you had no spots or blemishes. And so when John said, Behold the Lamb of God, there were several Old Testament lambs that would have come to mind for the Jews. The first one, and this goes way back, almost to the beginning of the Bible, uh, to Genesis, about chapter 20 to 22, uh, the story of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac. He was the son that Abraham's wife, Sarah, eventually bore to him in a very old age. Uh, among the many promises that God made to Abraham earlier in his life, God promised to make of him a great nation. But before Isaac was born, of course, Abraham had a pretty serious problem. He had no children. There were no children to develop into that great nation. Abraham, he was becoming a very old man, and his wife Sarah had been barren her entire life. God made them wait. And because of this, when God's promise was finally fulfilled, it was so obvious that it only happened 
by God's divine intervention. Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90 years old when Isaac, the child of the promise, was finally born. But then, some years later, maybe 15 years later or so, as Isaac was becoming a young man and Abraham and Sarah were even older, God tested Abraham. He told him to sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac, as a burnt offering. And Abraham was obedient. He took his son Isaac on a trip. They were going to make a sacrifice. Isaac was kind of in the dark about what was going on, at least for a while. Then they're, they're hiking up a mountain with a bundle of wood and some way to start a fire, a torch, or something like that, when Isaac notices that something is missing. Maybe in his old age, Abraham is getting forgetful. And so Isaac asks him, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham responds in a way that might seem kind of deceptive, although it's not deceptive at all. It turns out to be really prophetic. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb. And so they get to the top of the mountain. They get to the place that God had told Abraham to go. And there Abraham built an altar. He put the wood in place and he bound his son Isaac on top of it. And he had a knife, and he was about to plunge the knife into Isaac when the angel of the Lord spoke to him and told him to stop. It had now been demonstrated that Abraham trusted the Lord's promise. And we also see that God never intended for Isaac to be sacrificed. And so his life was spared. And then Abraham noticed a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham sacrificed that ram in place of his son. And this is a little detail we should notice here. A ram, even though it rhymes, is not the same thing as a lamb. But God is still uh, preserving that lamb in the future. And so Abraham's words that God will provide for himself a lamb are still true. And that lamb is still the sacrifice in place of Isaac, but God has this, this ram instead, and it kind of, kind of keeps our attention and makes us wait to see how God is going to bring this about. And so for thousands of years, those words, God will provide for himself the lamb, were remembered. And then John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the lamb that God provides for himself as a sacrifice. And then another sacrifice comes to mind, the Passover lamb. We fast forward about 500 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Moses and the exodus from Egypt. On the last night the Israelites spent in Egypt as slaves, God sent a plague on the land. It was the tenth and final plague, the plague of the firstborn. And the Lord swept through all the land of Egypt, and all the firstborn males died, both of, of animals and of livestock. But God provided a way of protection for the Israelites. Each house was to kill a lamb and paint the blood on the doorposts of their house. And then they were to stay inside, eat the Passover lamb, and not come out until morning. And during the night, God swept through the land of Egypt and killed all the firstborn, but he passed over 
every house that had lamb's blood painted on the doorpost. Thus it is called the Passover, when God passed over. And then the next day, the Israelites left Egypt forever. God had delivered them from slavery and protected them from his wrath by the blood of lambs. And it took a lot of lambs. At this point, a moderate estimate for the population of Israel would be about 1.5 million people. And when you consider that each household sacrificed a Passover lamb, that adds up to a lot of lambs, a few hundred thousand, I suppose. And then this sacrifice was instituted as a yearly remembrance of God's deliverance. Once a year, for thousands of years, every Israelite family would reenact this sacrifice. And now we're talking about hundreds of millions of lambs, and that is a lot of lambs and a lot of blood. And every single one of those lambs was a prophecy of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's also no coincidence that Jesus was crucified on the Passover. And so the Passover lamb is another that would have come to mind when John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there were more lambs, many more lambs and many more sacrifices. That's what the tabernacle and then eventually the temple was used for. There is a sacrifice called the perpetual sacrifice, and it is what it sounds like. Every day, for as long as the Israelites had a tabernacle or a temple, once in the morning and once in the evening, a lamb was sacrificed. Twice a day, every day. That's a lot of lambs and a lot of blood. There was also a sacrifice for purification after childbirth, and it usually uh, involved a lamb. Every time a woman gave birth, they had to make this sacrifice. And that, again, is a lot of lambs and a lot of blood. And there are all sorts of other sacrifices involving lambs as well as other animals. There are so many sacrifices, it's almost impossible to keep it all straight. We start to get the impression that the temple was basically a slaughterhouse and the priests were basically butchers. That's what they spent a lot of their time doing. It's what happened in the temple every single day. Now, this was not some kind of animal cruelty. With most of the sacrifices, someone typically got to eat the animal. They weren't commanded to just throw them away. But the blood was poured out, they cooked it, and unless it was a burnt offering, they ate it. But it was still a bloody mess. And this bloody mess was a perpetual prophecy of Jesus, the Son of God, our Messiah, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when people heard John the Baptist refer to Jesus this way, they would have thought of the temple and all the lambs and all the blood. They would have thought of the prophecy in Isaiah, chapter 53, where the prophet speaks of the Messiah as the suffering servant. And speaking of Jesus, he says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Jesus would end up doing the same thing that all those lambs did. He would walk up to the slaughter peaceful and willingly. Now, the lambs, I suppose, were peaceful and willing because they didn't know what was coming. But Jesus did know. 
And that's part of what makes this so marvelous. So when John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he teaches us what Jesus has come to do. He's come to die. That was the purpose. He has come to be sacrificed for the sin of the world. All those lambs, those hundreds of millions of lambs in the Old Testament, they were a shadow of Jesus. They were a living and breathing and ultimately dying prophecy of Jesus Christ. In his sacrificial death, he fulfilled the prophecy they proclaimed. And since he fulfilled that prophecy, the sacrifices can stop. The letter to the Hebrews calls Jesus the once-for-all sacrifice. Once-for-all. Now, this is good news for lambs, I suppose. They can stop dying so young. But it's also good news for you. It's even better news for you. It is good news for the entire world because the blood of lambs and bulls and goats can't actually take away sin. They're just animals. The sacrifices were a reminder of sin and a placeholder while we waited for the real sacrifice. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood is actually worth something in our redemption. As a true man, he's able to stand and hang in our place. And as true God, his sacrifice has infinite worth. He's able to stand in the place of all sinners. And we have confidence in this. We have confidence that this sacrifice was enough and that it was effective because God raised him from the dead on the third day. His resurrection is the proof that Jesus is who he says he is and God has done what he promised to do. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you may have noticed that this sermon is kind of bloody. There's a lot of death going on. Animals, humans, and even God himself. And to people with our modern sensibilities today, it might make us blush a little bit, maybe even question God and why there had to be so much blood. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this, but this at least needs to be said. God doesn't really care about our modern sensibilities. He doesn't care how evolved we think we are because the fact of the matter is we're not. We are the reason there had to be so much blood. The real reason that we get uncomfortable talking about sacrifices and blood being poured out and death for the forgiveness of sins is because we underestimate our own depravity. We brush aside our selfishness and our greed, our lust and rebellion and all sorts of things. Some of it we minimize, other parts of it we try to explain away. Uh, some of it we spin to make it seem like virtues, and so we take a sin like lust, and we call it love and pretend it's a good thing, but we're just fooling ourselves. And then we blame God for things like suffering and guilt and even damnation. When, in his justice, God punishes sin, we blame God. But he's the one who simply executes justice while we are the ones who possess so much wickedness. God is not the one who brought sin into the world. We did that, and we keep perpetuating it every day. God is not the one who brought death into the world. We did, and God is simply the one who reverses it for us. And so in the sacrifices, specifically in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, 
the Lamb of God, God is executing justice, and he's doing it in the most gracious way by executing justice upon himself against his own son. He sacrifices the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here's the point. Jesus Christ bore the sin of the entire world, all the world, every person, all time, every sin in his body. And he suffered the punishment for that sin. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. This was appointed from eternity past for the Lamb of God to do, to take away the sin of the world. Now this last part I I think is obvious, but I'm going to state it anyway because it's really, really important. If Jesus takes away the sin of the whole world, that means that he takes away your sin because you are part of that world. So behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.